So we are done with Nehemiah, and we are starting a new series this week that will run for three weeks. This is the first week, and then two more weeks after this. We're going to do a refresh of our values. We do this roughly every year to 18 months, something like that. Um, So we have three values. If you've ever noticed the sign in the um, lobby there, if you're getting your coffee, you look up, and there's three values. Gospel, community, and mission. Okay? So only three. We want to keep it simple, um, which I think can be helpful because oftentimes we can feel like we've got, you know, 15 plates that we're trying to spin. So keeping it simple, I won't say stupid, you know, unless I'm speaking to myself, but keeping it simple is helpful. But simple does not mean superficial. We don't want cheap, token religion or just kind of like, you know, catchphrases and slogans. Real Christianity is not like a veneer that's just painted on the surface, but only that deep. Real Christianity is transformative from the inside out, from the core of who we are, all the way out to how we live, our attitudes, our actions, our words, our thoughts, all of that. So by the power of God's grace, he changes us deep at the core of who we are, what we value, and then that gets fleshed out in life. So we're all here on planet Earth for a reason, for a purpose. The purpose of our existence, what is the uh, chief end of man? Westminster Catechism says to glorify God and enjoy him forever and to help others do the same thing, right? To glorify God, enjoy him forever. Well, here's how we state our purpose, okay? We've used this statement for years. We exist to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ for the glory of his name and the good of all peoples. It's just another way of saying glorify God and enjoy him forever, but maybe a little bit more specific. So we exist to reflect. Why do we use that language? Well, we're made in God's image, right? So we're actually made to image forth the glory of God because we're all little moons to whatever sun that we worship, right? The moon doesn't have its own light. It reflects the light of the sun. So we're all little reflectors giving off the light of what we love, of what we treasure, what we value, what we worship. So we as human beings were made in God's image. We were formed in God's image to reflect God's glory, right? The heavens are telling the glory of God. His glory is all around us in the the birds and the trees and the animals and chiefly in his, the crown of his creation, human beings made in his image. And what did he task Adam and Eve with? He blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Why? Because he wanted his glory to fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. So these little image bearers, little moons to the sun, reflect his light. And as they are fruitful and multiply, the whole earth gets filled with his light. Right? But then sin comes in. And if we are like little reflectors or mirrors, the fall was like going smash to the mirror. And it's broken. And so the image is distorted The lens is dirtied. And rather than reflecting the glory of the Lord, I mean, we still do image forth God's glory in 
you know, general ways, like we're still creative, we're still relational and all of that, but everything's broken. We run from the light rather than reflecting the light. We spread darkness rather than love. We spread, you know, hate and violence and injustice and all of this. So we are deformed. But then the image of God was sent. The perfect reflection, the radiance of God's glory was sent and can it be <laughs> that God in the flesh would die for you and me? So Jesus, all that deformity, all of our sin and rebellion, he took it on the cross in our place. It is finished. And so when the gospel, the good news of Jesus' work on the cross comes home, like when it really sinks in, we're like new creations. We're reformed. Right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So with that new nature, new spirit planted within us, God's spirit within us, we start to change, not by our own iron will or, you know, just our own efforts to be good. We're changed as grace takes root in our lives and fills us up and changes our loves and orders our lives and all of that. So we're transformed. So formed deformed, reformed, transformed by grace, conformed even to the image of Christ so that we can shine with the light of God. So we exist to reflect God's infinite worth. He's the treasure of the universe. He's the greatest treasure that we can ever have. He's what we really need and what we want. We can only reflect him through Christ. So we exist to reflect God's infinite worth through Christ. And when we draw attention to his worth, he gets glory and other people get help, right? For the good of all peoples, both neighbors and the nations, okay? So that's kind of a quick summary of why that's our purpose statement or mission statement. And then there's a battle, right? A constant battle <clears throat> for our formation, so even though we're new, if you're a Christian, you're new in Christ, there's a constant battle for your formation. The world is a value formation machine. You go and enter the machine every day, right? Which is why Paul writes in Romans 12, so the whole series, these three parts, gospel, community, mission, we're going to focus in the book of Romans, okay? So in Romans 12, Paul says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, in view of his just glorious mercies that I've just talked about, written about for 11 chapters, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your minds. Okay? So we are new, but we need to continually be made new transformed, conformed to the image of Christ so that we can shine with God's light. And the values flesh out how we do that here. What's it look like to live in such a way that our lives are just trained on God? He's the treasure of our lives. He's what's most valuable to us. You spend any time around somebody, it doesn't take long before you get to know what they really treasure, what they really value, right? So if our lives are trained on God, then what's going to be valuable to us is the gospel. How else? 
did we get this great treasure? <laughs> it's only by the good news of the gospel, only by the power of the gospel. And then what happens is when we get that relationship with God, it changes us. It makes us want more of God. So greater intimacy with him, communion with him, and actually greater intimacy with his people. Communion, community with one another. And then that grace, when it's operative, also tends to send us out to minister to needs, to love other people in ministry and mission. So the gospel is the center. It's not just one of the three values. It's the main and central value that animates and empowers the other two values. When the gospel's at the center, we want to go further up and further in. We want to know God better. And we want to love each other well. We want to love each other better. We're not going to be lone rangers. We're not going to be antisocial, anti-loving, trying to save our lives and our, our comfort. We're going to move toward one another in love because that's how God has dealt with us in the gospel. And then it's going to send us out because, man, we got some good news. And there are other people that are just dying and going to hell and they're hopeless and despairing and we want them to know the same hope and life and love and intimacy and communion that we have experienced. So you see how it all works together? All right. So the next two weeks will be community and mission. But again, it all starts with the gospel. So that's where we start this morning. The gospel is not just the entryway to Christianity. It's the whole pilgrimage. <laughs> it needs to be at the center of the whole pilgrimage. Okay? So, um, like I said, Romans. So if you're not already there, go ahead and turn to the book of Romans. Uh, Jemmy read for us from chapter one. And we're going to be looking at several texts in the front half of the book this morning. Um, as we do, I, I want to kind of underline a point that actually Russell already made. You know, he told that story of a sermon and the qualification, like, what are you doing here? What right do you have to be here? Well, I'm with him. It's a similar story. So Alistair Begg, anybody know who that is? He's a pastor in, in Ohio, of all places. Um, sorry, no shade on Ohio, but he's Scottish. So like, what's he doing in Ohio? Um, and I'm sorry, I don't have the cool accent like he does. I'm not even going to try. Um, but he's commenting on the thief on the cross. And I love this, the way that he puts this. So this is mainly his words with a little bit of editing. So he said, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation, our rightness with God. So there's that age-old question, if you were to die tonight and you come to heaven and they say, you know, what right do you have to be here? What would you say? So if you answer that, or if I answer that in the first person, he says, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I... Because I did this or that. Do you know that that's immediately going wrong? <laughs> he said the proper answer is in the third person because he 
because he. So think about the thief on the cross, and this is what he teased out. He said, I can't wait to find that fellow one day and ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You've never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. You didn't attend the Bethel membership class. I mean, which is going on right now, and it's a good thing, you know. And yet you made it. How'd you make it? And these kinds of, like, um, characterizations of angels are really for the sake of the story. I'm going to stick with this. But when people encounter angels in the Bible, they hit the deck. They're tempted to worship. So the angels are not like keystone cops, okay? Sorry, but for the sake of the story, I'll go ahead with it here. So then the angel must have said, you know, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. Well, excuse me, let me get my supervisor angel. So just, just a few questions for you. This would be way better in a Scottish accent, and I'm feeling that right now. Okay. So first of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the thief on the cross, he's just like, I've never heard that in my life. And what about, okay, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture. And the guy's like, deer in the headlights. And eventually, in frustration, the angel says, on what basis are you here? And the man said, the man on the middle cross said that I could come. He said, that's the only answer. So if I don't, this is still him, if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day, every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy while at the same time living as if my salvation depends on me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair because you can't be good enough, you can't do it, or a horrible kind of arrogance if you actually, you know, get some stuff together and then you start looking down your morally superior nose on other people like the Pharisee in Luke 18. I'm, I thank you, God, but I'm not like... And it's only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and be a good Christian. No. And he quotes the hymn, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So he also, one more thing here, he said, so that's why Luther said most of your Christian life is outside of you. Interesting, helpful little thought. Do you know what he means? Most of your Christian life is outside of you in this sense that we know that we are not saved by good works. Our works were saved as a result of what Christ has accomplished. Okay, so again, is this just important at the front door of the Christian life, you know, when you become a Christian and then you just kind of forget about that and move on to deeper things or better things? Or is it essential for the whole pilgrimage of the Christian life from conversion to entering the presence of our Savior when we die? Well, I was kind of a leading question. It's obviously helpful, necessary the whole way along. Here's the question. Do you and I, do we actually live like it's essential? And what does it look like for it to, to be essential? Like on a daily basis, like a really practical daily basis. We need to grow in this. I need to grow in this. And we'll get to some practical, 
you know, what does it look like in practice at the end? But let's, here's the three-point outline. What the gospel is, what the gospel does, and gospel-powered living, okay? So what it is, let's make sure we're clear on that. What it does, and then we'll look at some practical ways in which the, the gospel is our power source, okay? It's what empowers us. Thank you to live the life that God calls us to live. So, first point, what the gospel is. Word gospel, probably most of you know this, it means good news, but stop and think about it. The gospel is news. You remember that point about Luther? Most of your Christian life is outside of you. It happened. <laughs> it's history. This actually happened. It's news. It's not advice. The gospel is not advice. It's news. The gospel is not religion. It's news. It's not morality even, though it changes us and leads to living different lives, moral lives, you could say. So Jemmy read Romans 1, 1 to 17. And in those verses, the word gospel is mentioned four times. Look at it with me here. So in verse 1, it's the gospel of God. Okay, so Paul's an apostle. He's set apart for the gospel of God, and the gospel is concerning the Son of God. You see it referenced that way in verse 3. In verse 9, Paul says that he serves God in the gospel of his Son. Similar language. And then in verse 14, he says he's obligated to all people. Therefore, he's eager to preach the gospel in Rome because he's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes but we really haven't even heard what it is yet, right? So what is the gospel? Could you explain it in a sentence? Well, I guess we just sung a song, and I guess there, it gave you a sentence version. Could you explain it in a paragraph? Can you explain it in an elevator ride? That would be helpful. Or if a plane is going down, could you stand up and share this news? Can you explain it in a five-minute conversation or a 45-minute conversation? So let's walk through the first several chapters of Romans, hit a few key places where we find the content of the gospel in nutshell form so that we can see what the gospel is, so that we can be clear on it, understand it. It's a huge help, Romans is when it comes to understanding what the gospel is. So first, chapter three. three twenty-three. <clears throat> For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're gonna have to start with the bad news. So right after the section that Jemmy read, in the gospel, 117, the righteousness of God is revealed, but 118, the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Okay, there's bad news before there's good news because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this all have sinned thing is coming on the heels of 3, 10 to 12. Look at these verses here. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. Not one does good, not even one. 
That is the human condition apart from God's grace. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. We're all guilty. We've all broken God's law. We've all fallen short of his standard. But this language, let's zero in on it again, fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, let's look at it through the doorway of another passage. Look back at Romans 1. In Romans 1.25, he said, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So what does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? It's to exchange the glory of God for something lesser and worship and serve that thing. So do you see how that's falling short of it? Like we're choosing this lesser thing and we're worshiping and serving that thing rather than worshiping and serving the glorious God who is our creator and our only savior. So <clears throat> Romans, just to maybe make this a little bit more concrete, what, is it, what does it mean to exchange the truth of God for a lie? What does it mean to worship the creation rather than the creator? You know, when you scratch a New Testament text, oftentimes you'll find an Old Testament text underneath. Kind of like scratch and then underneath you find something hidden. Well, if you scratch Romans 125, Jeremiah 2, 11 to 13 is underneath. I think that text will be up on the screen here. So in Jeremiah's day, God is dealing with his rebellious people and he says in verse 11, has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Stop and think about that. Think about what that says about God's character. He wants this prophet for us. <laughs> Do you see that? They've changed their glory. They've exchanged, like, here's the deal. You can have me or you can have this created thing. You can worship one or the other. How much can an idol do for you? Nothing, not much. It's not a real God. So do you see how that's trading down? You see how foolish that is? It's like giving up your wealth and riches. This can't profit you. Look at all the value, the treasure that's in God. So my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled. Like he's calling heaven and earth to say, look at this. This is crazy. Can you believe this? Next verse, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what it looks like to change, exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship the creation rather than the creator. It's falling short of the glory of God. This is what sin looks like. It's evil to look the fountain of living waters in the eye and say, no, I don't really think you can satisfy me. I'm gonna see what I can do at the bottom of this broken cistern. You know, that rusty water over there on the bottom. I think that'll be better for me. 
Do you see how that's such a dishonor to God? And do you see how that's starving our souls of real thirst quenching, soul thirst quenching refreshment? And those things always go together. <laughs> Glorifying God and our souls truly being satisfied or dishonoring God and starving our souls. So when we have other gods before God, God is not glorified and we are not satisfied. So even that command, like his law is good for us, like have no other gods before me. That shouldn't be heavy and oppressive. That's like, I'm trying to give you what's really going to satisfy you. So sin and evil is actually self-sabotage. It's like, give me this nasty mosquito egg-ridden puddle over, do they lay eggs? I think so. Over this like glacial spring. We've all done this. We've suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. So we deserve his wrath and condemnation and judgment. Listen, why am I going over this? Because, yeah, come on, like we're Christians. Why are we going over this? You remember Simon the Pharisee? Those who've been forgiven much, love much. Those who've been forgiven little or, or think that they only need a little forgiveness, love little. We need to look this in the eye and not turn away. Why, like, if we were really aware of what we deserve and really aware of how great God's grace is, do you think it might impact how much we grumble <laughs> or how much we complain or how anxious we are? I mean, it has all kinds of bearing on all kinds of things. So we've traded down trash for treasure, lesser for greater, gift in place of the giver. So what we actually need is to feel, to know, to experience the sinfulness of sin in a deeper way. That's actually a good thing. And, and the point of, not, of that is not to like, you know, rub your face in it, you know, make you feel worse, worse, worse. No, the point is to really see who we really are and what God really had to do to forgive all of that. And then the cross actually grows like, oh my goodness. My need is so great. This grace is so amazing. So that's why we look at the bad news. We don't skip it because we need to realize how sinful sin is. It's easy to just kind of plug along and think, I mean, come on, God, throw me a bone. Like when we suffer, have you ever had this happen? And you're thinking like, I mean, am I doing all this for nothing? Like I'm making all these sacrifices and I'm, I'm, I'm following you and then this is what you give me? So I'm gonna press in a little further, okay? Like press it in a little further. Do you know what it's like to be used? Do you know what it feels like to be used? Not good. The other person that uses you, they don't care about you. They just want what you can give them or what they can take from you. 
Does God know what it's like to be used? We have all treated him like a tool and not this infinitely precious, valuable treasure that he is. We treat him like an errand boy or like a genie. Like we treat God like AAA. Does anybody love AAA and think about him all the time? You call AAA when something's wrong and then you forget about AAA. Or like the jack in the back of your car, in the trunk. The only time you think about that thing is when your car, when your tire's flat. You use it to get you out of a jam, you throw it back in the trunk. That's called foxhole faith when we treat God that way. What we really want is clear skies and normalcy. We don't want God. We just use him like a tool. Has your dignity ever been trampled? Have you ever been dishonored? Whoa, what rises up when that happens? Like judicial sentiments keep firing, boom, boom, like this is wrong, you know, so we can get angry, you know, most of it's unrighteous, but there are times there's righteous anger because we are created in God's image with inherent dignity and worth, and it is evil for someone to trample on that dignity. But here's where I'm getting at. What about God? What about his honor? What's his righteous response to the way that we have dishonored and belittled his name? Do we allow ourselves a reaction that we don't allow God or don't want to allow God? One more time. I'm going to turn the screw one more time, okay? How does infidelity feel to you? So maybe some of you have experienced it firsthand if a spouse cheated on you. If not, imagine, put yourself in, in that person's shoes. How does that feel? What's the righteous response to that betrayal? Or if you were a child and it was one of your parents. The Bible over and over again uses the metaphor of infidelity to describe our unfaithfulness to God. All idolatry, when we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the created thing rather than the creator, idolatry is spiritual adultery. Book of Hosea, James 4, you adulteresses. So we cheat on God, we're like two-timers. We try to like keep up our relationship with God and then, so you feel a little bit more the sinfulness of sin a little more than usual? Isn't it easy to just kind of grow dull and yeah, like, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but it's actually one of our greatest problems is to be out of touch with our need. Because again, he who's been forgiven much loves much. He who's forgiven little loves little. So the book of Romans sits us down and doesn't let us up until we've looked honestly at our sin in all of its ugliness, even the religious types in Romans 2. So in chapter 1, it's kind of like all, the, all that mess out in the world and, you know, all the religious types can go, yeah, yeah, it's ugly. And then chapter 2 turns to the religious hypocrites and says, oh, oh but what about you? <laughs> you? You judge all these other people, but 
but what about you? You do the same thing. So hypocrisy is evil as well. So with all that in mind, look at Romans 3.23 and the couple verses that follow again. So for all have sinned. This is us. This is you. This is me. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so he could just wipe us out. But instead, all who've sinned and who are now trusting in Jesus are justified right with God forevermore by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Absolutely set free from slavery to sin. We're not in the Egypt of sin anymore. We've been redeemed and brought out of the house of slavery. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood, an atoning sacrifice, and we receive it by faith. It's a gift. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing. So the more we feel the sinfulness of sin, like, oh, it's so ugly. It's down at my core. I'm so spring-loaded to all of this. And yet God has been so gracious, so merciful. He's so loving. This gospel is so good. And we slow down and we feel the weight of his grace. Like, the bigger the weight of sin, the sweeter the grace when it comes. So flip ahead to Romans 5 and look at another gospel summary here. Chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Chapter 4 says he justifies the ungodly. So we don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath. We don't have to be good enough to earn our place at the table. He died for guilty, weak, broken sinners. Verse 8, God shows his love, demonstrates his love. He wants to demonstrate his love. He wants us to see his love. This is who he is. It's his heart. He's not hiding it from us. He's demonstrating it, showing it to us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. While we were biting the hand that feeds, feeds us. While we were running away from him. And he came after us. We were shaking our fist in his face. We were raging against the machine. We're ignoring him. We're turning away from the fountain and slurping the bottom of the broken cistern. And what did he do? Idiots. You know? No, he came down. So listen, every time you screw up again, if he did this in the first place, why wouldn't he be there again? Like, this is his heart. This good news is ours every day of our lives. So we've got to slow down. Don't try to minimize the sin. Blame, shift, justify, rationalize. We see it, and then, like, man, I'm worse than I thought. But the gospel's better than I dream. Like, I, I don't give God credit. Romans 6.23, one more here. What is the gospel? For the wages of sin is death. That's what we've earned. That's what we deserve. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
if we got our wages, if we got what we earned, it's death. In the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Physical death, spiritual death. But because of Jesus, holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin. And by his death, I live again. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's what the gospel is. Now what does the gospel do? Point number two. First, it's got power to save, right? We saw that in the passage Jemmy read, 116. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed for, from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So it's the power of God to save. That's what it does. The gospel saves. It's also the power of God to change and mature us. Even if you're already a Christian, it's, it's also the power to change us, okay? Anybody feel stuck this morning? You don't have to raise your hand unless you want to. The gospel has power to get you unstuck. It has power to change us. This is really clear, wonderfully clear in the book of Romans. So I wanna just go through some texts and show you that the power of God, the gospel, saves us, but it also sanctifies us. It changes us. There's power available for change and growth. So look at this, just to show you some examples. First off, notice what Paul says in verse 15. <clears throat> so in verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation to everybody. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Wait a second. These people are already Christians. Why, why does he want to preach the gospel to the Christians in Rome? Because they're strengthened, they change, they grow by the power of the gospel. Not just saved, but also sanctified. So we'll just look at some examples. Look at the end of chapter 3. When we understand what the gospel is, one of the ways that it changes us is that it kills pride. The cross kills pride. So look at verse 27 in chapter 3. Then what becomes of our boasting? If it's purely by grace as a gift, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. So we have no self-righteousness. We have no confidence in the flesh. We have no reason to be spiritually proud. We can only boast in the cross. So do you see how the gospel kills pride. It kills self-righteousness. It changes us. It makes us humble. I'm not impressive. Jesus is. Look at what he's done. It also can create joy and stability through suffering. Look at chapter 5. Just notice the logic here because what, what we need to do is we actually need to follow the logic. If we're going to remind ourselves on a daily basis of this good news so that it changes us when we are struggling or as we want to grow, then we have to follow the logic of the text here. So when you're suffering, you can think, God must have forgotten about me. Maybe he doesn't love me anymore. Maybe he's, you know, just like fed up with me. No. Look at Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. I'm safe forever. So if that's true, I have hope. Nothing can kill that hope. And then look at this, verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So we belong to God. He is ours. He's not punishing us. Jesus already took the punishment on the cross. So when we suffer, he's purifying us. He's strengthening us and producing endurance in us and character and hope. So the gospel enables us, gives us stability and joy even in the midst of suffering. We could talk about chapter eight. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How practical is that? When we ourselves you know, beat ourselves up for all of our failures and sin, or the evil one loves to wag his finger and accuse us, or other people may condemn and accuse us. But if God has justified us, who can condemn? The gospel enables us to be secure in our identity. So the gospel is the power to save and to sanctify. Just look at another example. Chapter 12, we already mentioned these verses at the beginning. Don't be conformed to this world. But remember, how do you offer yourself as a living sacrifice? Where's the power for that? By the mercies of God. Do you see it there? I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies. Like, where's the strength to get up on the altar and say, my life is yours, do with me what you will? Where's the strength for that? The mercies. If your eyes are on the mercies, you're going to be willing to give your life for whatever God has for you. Or unity in the church. Where's the power to be one when we have differences of opinion on disputable matters? Well, Romans 15, verse 7 says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Do you see it? The gospel of welcome enables us to welcome others even when we differ on disputable matters. All right, so we grow by the power of the gospel. One last thing to point out here. Look at the end of this book. Look at the doxology at the end. Just to reinforce the point. Now to him, this is verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. The gospel strengthens us. It saves us, but it also strengthens us. The preaching of Jesus Christ doesn't just save people. It strengthens and builds people up, grows them. So here's the bottom line. Do you see the utter necessity 
that we not assume the gospel. Oh, yeah, 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 I know that. But we soak in it and we center on it every day. Like it is our power tomorrow to live. It's foundational, it's practical. We can't assume it, we've gotta soak in it, otherwise we're gonna be weak and ineffective. So we need to live gospel-powered, third point. So we need to get practical, this needs to be helpful, like how do I do this? If the gospel's supposed to not only save me but strengthen me, how's that happen? Well, let me just give you a few thoughts here, practically speaking. Has the news ever affected your mood? Huh. Did you connect the dots there? Like, well, this is news. The gospel's news. So do you think it should affect our mood? I think sometimes we allow the news on earth, the news cycle, to impact us more than the good news of the gospel. I mean, that's something we could pray about. Like, even if you can't say, well, I'm just going to fix this tomorrow and the news will never bother me again. No, but the point is, okay, Lord, why does the news freak me out sometimes and I start spinning and getting anxious and fearful about what's going to happen and blah, blah, blah. What is true? What's happened? What has happened? Like, God invaded this world and not to, like, wipe everybody out with, you know, his hammer from Asgard. He came to save. He died on a cross. Like, that changes everything. So that's one thing. News actually affects us. So the good news is supposed to affect us. And we'll see how in the next couple weeks how the gospel creates community, how it empowers mission, But again, for now, we're speaking more generally. (laughs) Here's another just simple, practical thing. We, our our school had a musical this weekend, Annie, and I woke up this morning, and NYC, (laughs) da, 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 da. Like, I can't get these stupid songs out of my head. I really want them out of my head now. Like, please. Why are they in my head? Well, I went to every show. Well, I didn't go to the third show. I was watching it because I was bringing Lily back from a volleyball tournament. But, you know, we watched it. One of our kids is in the thing. So I heard these songs. I heard them at home. It's like a soundtrack of our lives, you know, for the last few weeks. So what if we curated our soundtrack? And what if we listen to it a lot? Hey, like Spotify to the glory of God. Come on, folks. Apple Music, whatever your preferred platform is, the songs are just there. Like, I know there's songs that I go to. I'm like, you know, my mind's all over the place and I need to just focus and get my heart in the right place. There's some songs I start singing where I start playing. <laughs> That's pretty practical, but it's wonderfully helpful. Like, what if, what if we just couldn't get these songs 
out of our heads. <laughs> so it certainly might look like us starting your knees. Start, start, yeah, starting your knees. There, isn't that helpful? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Um, so starting your days on, in the word on your knees, okay? It may also, it may also look like not thinking God's annoyed with you and unwilling to help you because you didn't do your devotions the last couple days. That'd be believing the gospel in that moment that God is still willing to help even though I've been kind of a pathetic Christian lately. Power of the gospel. It may look like some desperation prayers throughout the day when you're spinning and anxious or when you're amped up and frustrated. I know for me, it was on Friday. here I'm like preparing this thing, I'm feeling totally overloaded, and I'm like trying to get everything done, and you know, like this. And I just had to stop, and I'm like, does the gospel have anything to say to where, like, where my mind's at right now? And I was like, oh, wow, what a simple question. I, I needed to ask myself that. Like, I needed to preach the gospel to myself when I'm stressed out because I'm trying to prepare a sermon about pre preaching the gospel to myself and I am not anywhere near as far along as I should be and I got 15 other things I got to do before. So does the, stopping, this is, the, this is the point, this is the bullet point. How often do you stop when you don't know what's going on or don't know what to do or you're struggling with this or that or it's just like, you know, eating up all the mental oxygen. Okay, God, does, does the gospel have anything to say to where I'm at right now? Like for me, you know what the answer was? Okay, Chris, my biggest problem is taken care of. <laughs> like, okay, these are important things. I need to get some stuff done. But at the end of the day, this is all flea bites in comparison. I deserve the wrath of God. He is completely taken care of it. He's, he's for me. He's not against me. He's with me. Oh my goodness, like I got a shepherd all the way home. And it literally... Calm me down. The gospel did. So I was going to do two more. I think I'm just going to do one quick thing and then we're going to participate in communion. So just that cross chart, Chad, or Hope, is that Hope back there? Can you put this, the chart, on the screen? So I've shown this to probably a number of folks here. Um, it's not original to me, but this is another practical way that the gospel changes things. So um, there's a lot of different ways you could kind of tease this out or unpack it, but here's what happens. Oh, is this working? So we get converted, and ideally, we would just grow in our understanding of God's greatness and glory and holiness, like all along in the Christian life. And we would grow, like, not only do we have sinful behavior and words, but man, my motives are mixed and, oh, like, layer upon layer, and we grow in our, in our understanding of sinfulness. And so as a result, the cross keeps growing. And we are just more and more thankful for what God has done. Do you see it? Yeah. But what happens is we get stagnant and static and we think we know God already and the cross stays the same size and what ends up happening is we start to you know 
think that it's kind of based on, I, I'm actually pretty good, I'm definitely better than other people. Like, oh, I can't believe how, you know, so-and-so doesn't serve. Like here I'm sacrificing and, or we can get totally overwhelmed and just feel like total failures as Christians and we just get stunted and the cross stays the same size and there's no growth as a result. I, there's so many ways to kind of unpack the meaning here, but we can end up like pretending and performing rather than the cross growing. Do you see how that can happen? That's not going to be helpful. Or we can just end up wallowing and feeling paralyzed because we're just not good enough. We just, oh, we just stink. So, yeah, we're running out of time. But the point is, do you, do you just see always growing in understanding God's greatness and you know what? Yeah, the sinfulness of sin too. Not to rub our nose in it and just, you know, you worm, you're pathetic. But instead, to grow in our appreciation, oh my goodness, this gospel is such good news. And that gospel fills us and empowers us and changes us and makes us joyful, stable, steady, peaceful. We bear the fruit of the Spirit by grace. So if the musicians will come up, we're going to prepare for the table. And isn't this fitting? The gospel is the power of God to save, and it is the power of God to strengthen us. So God gave us a tactile, tasteable means of grace to remind us regularly of our great need and his great grace. So if you are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, if you are a believer, this table is for you. Imagine Jesus set the table. We all take a seat around the table, and, you know, somebody looks at you. What are you doing here? The answer is not, well, I, it's, I'm with him. <laughs> the guy on the middle cross I'm, I'm with him. So drink in, feed on, be strengthened by the encouragement, the grace that is yours in Christ. You're not alone. It is not gratuitous suffering. He's with us and for us. Where we have worshiped and served created things, where we are self-medicating, where we are running to other things, comfort food and, you know, retail therapy and whatever else, we're running to those things for the, the, the filling and the strength that only Jesus can give? Well, come to the table. There's grace and forgiveness. There's cleansing and help. And we are strengthened and renewed. And then we walk out in the strength that he supplies. So let's prepare our hearts where we need to repent and confess our sins and say, Lord, ah, I have been doing this in my own strength or I'm, you know, guilty of idolatry over here. I just want to throw that down and I want you to fill me up and strengthen me. Let's do that and then we will participate in the table. So if you haven't grabbed... Um, 
the cup and the wafer. They're out there if you need to grab them while the, the musicians play quietly here before we participate together in the Lord's table. So Lord, please prepare our hearts. Please remind us of the grace of the gospel, the good news of the gospel for us guilty sinners that we would say, how can it be that you, oh my God, would take on flesh and die for me? In Jesus' name, amen.